Oh, Lord, what a privilege and a blessing and a joy it is to worship you in song, worship you in giving, worship you in, worshiping you by the reading of your word in prayer, in our fellowship with one another as we live out in community with one another. And, Father, what a privilege and a blessing it is to worship you in the preaching of your word as well as in the reception and application of your word. I pray that, Lord, we may not be merely hearers who are self-deceived, but doers of your word that are driven to a higher view of you, that we might worship and adore you, as well as to loving obedience in the way that we care for and love one another, especially in a topic that is so such a difficult one in our culture today, Lord, marriage and family. I pray that we as husbands may lead well and that we may be impacted this morning by your word to be different men who are lovers of our wives and leaders for their benefit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19, Colossians three nineteen, we are in the middle of our series, as you know, on the family. And this is a message two of the message that I began last week titled, The Husband's Sobering Responsibility. The Husband's Sobering Responsibility. Colossians 3.19 says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. In J. Oswald Sanders' classic book called Spiritual Leadership, uh, there is an inspiring poem written by a man which highlights the fact that God is always searching for men who are fully devoted to Him, that He might use them for His purposes and for His glory on this earth. And he writes this, Give me a man of God, one man, whose faith is master of his mind, And I will right all wrongs and bless the name of all mankind. Give me a man of God, one man, whose tongue is touched with heaven's fire. And I will flame the darkest hearts with high resolve and clean desire. Give me a man of God, one man, one mighty prophet of the Lord. And I will give you peace on earth, bought with a prayer and not a sword. Give me a man of God, one man, true to the vision that he sees. And I will build your broken shrines and bring the nations to their knees. Give me men to match my mountains. Give me men to match my plains. Men with empires in their purpose. Men with eras in their brains. Now take it with a grain of salt, right? It's an inspiring poem. It's written by a man, not directly from the the mouth of God. It's a dramatic poem, however, that really communicates, I think, the heart of God to bring about change by using men who are completely beloved, sold out for His purposes here on this earth. God is always looking for those men who are sold out for His cause here on this earth. Whenever there have been movements in history, in the history of the church, if you will, God has brought about those great movements by using human agents as His instruments to bring about change to carry out His purposes, to stand in the gap, to make a difference. He's looking for those individuals, and in particular, especially on the forefront, men. God is looking for men to lead in His church. 
And the reason why he's doing that is because as the men of the church go, so does the church. As the men go, so does the church. What we've been learning as well, that it's the same thing in the home, isn't it? As the husband goes in the home, so does the home. So does the home. And we've been talking about the fact that God has... has um, his beautiful design is that, is that husbands should lead their families. That they have been given delegated authority, authority from God, not to lord their leadership over their families, but to, to care for the needs of their, of their home, especially their wives. To nurture and care for his family. For their benefit is his leadership given, not for himself. Leading our wives is our sobering responsibility, brothers, if you are married. It is our privilege, you might say, as husbands to lead our wives and lead our families. The husband is to lead his wife and family. And if you are not married here this morning, I would say to you that this sermon is also applicable to you. Younger or older, if you desire to be married someday, if God opens that door for you to be married, you are to be cultivating leadership in your life right now and service and self-sacrifice and seeking to meet the needs of other people rather than just your own. Because the switch doesn't just turn on when you get married someday, should the Lord bring a woman to you and all of a sudden you become the most selfless man that ever existed, right? You need to cultivate a heart of a leader now, servant-minded, sacrificial. So the husband is to lead his wife. This is God's design. But as we saw last week, the husband must lead in a Christ-exalting way. It's not up to him how he leads. He must lead in accordance with the way that God has outlined it for him to lead. And as we saw, Colossians 3.19, we saw that Colossians 3.19 states that the husband's leadership should be, uh, first and foremost, characterized by love for their wives. Love. And our main point was that the husband's leadership is not to be selfish, but loving leadership. Loving leadership. And we went to the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, if you remember, to look at the fact that, that Paul expands there upon the nature of a husband's love, that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves his church. So our love, husbands, is to be patterned after the example of Jesus in the way that he loved his church. How did Jesus love his church? He loved his church self-sacrificially, we saw. He laid down his life for his church, for his church who full of unworthy sinners who are undeserving, unlovely, who did not merit his favor. He died for them, laid down his life for them. His love is an active love in sacrifice, right? He laid down his life for those who believe in him. It is a love that takes initiative. He was proactive. He came from heaven to earth and condescended and clothed himself with humanity. Took the initiative to redeem sinners to himself. It is a caring kind of love. Because he carried out a love for the benefit of his church and continues to benefit his church. Jesus came to earth for the glory of his father to fulfill his father's perfect will and to meet the needs of his people. 
And he continually does that, doesn't he? He cares for us spiritually and emotionally and physically. It was a committed love. Jesus doesn't walk away from his people. And husbands today need to learn a lesson from that. Not to walk away from their wives. Whether it's ultimately in divorce or in the marriage, not choosing to face challenges. We are called to imitate the love of Jesus, a committed, devoted love that faced challenges head on, beloved. Head on. And thus husbands are to be doing the same thing. Not running away from problems, not running away from, from difficulties and conflict with their spouses, but facing things head on in a committed type of fashion. It is a protective love. Christ protects His church. One day He's going to return to deliver the final death blow upon those who persecute His people and oppose His people, who undermine His name. He's going to judge them and deliver that final death blow. He is a protective kind of love. And husbands are to stand well before their families as well and be protective of our wives, to care for them, to go to bat for them whenever we need to. Even protect them from sin and lovingly confront them so that they would not fall into danger of sin. So in some, Jesus' leadership was not selfish but loving leadership. And in the same way, husband's leadership is not to be selfish, self-serving, but loving leadership after the pattern of Jesus Christ. And the more we understand Jesus' love, brothers, the more we understand His love the more we will be able to love our own wives. Amen? so important that we preach the gospel to ourselves and we be reminded of God's love for us. This is why if, if, you, are, if you are not in Christ, if you are not following Jesus, a lot of this stuff makes little sense to you or you're indifferent to it because you have not experienced God's loving forgiveness by trusting in Jesus so as to propel you to now in turn manifest this type of loving forgiveness towards your wife, husband. Towards your husband, wife. Your response should be to call upon the name of the Lord. To turn from your sins. To seek God's forgiveness. That you may experience His love and understand why your marriage must be founded upon Jesus Christ. And there's no other foundation upon which to build a marriage. Your marriage will never be everything that God wants it to be unless Jesus is the foundation, unless Jesus is the rock. So this morning, we want to talk about this leadership yet again of the husband. And we want to see, secondly, that the husband's leadership is not harsh, but tender leadership. It is not selfish, but loving leadership. It is not harsh, but tender leadership. Look at Colossians 3.19. He says, Husbands, love your wives, and here it is, and do not be embittered against them. Paul is now defining love in the negative here. Because one of the greatest hindrances, obstacles to a husband's loving leadership, listen to me, brothers, is when settled bitterness exists in our hearts. When we begin to, to coddle the, the pet sin of bitterness and resentment in our hearts, and that settles in our hearts, we can resort to sinful, harsh leadership toward our wives. But what is the opposite of harsh leadership? But tender leadership. Tender leadership that shows itself in, in kindness 
and gentleness toward our wives. Tender leadership that is shown in in humble sacrifice for them. And not self-serving, a self-serving kind of an attitude. But a desire to meet the needs of of our wives first and foremost. That's how tenderness manifests itself. And I'll tell you what, such tenderness doesn't come easy for men, right? Anybody uh, have perfected the issue, the, uh, the uh, issue of tenderness in their marriage? It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. And as the years pass by, it is easy for, for husbands to become more hardened to their wives and their hearts, less tender, less sensitive to them and to their needs. You may have heard this one before, but some years ago, the Saturday Evening Post carried an article titled, The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. And the article revealed the reactions of a husband to his wife's colds during their first seven years of marriage. And it went something like this. This is the husband speaking to his sick wife. In the first year, what does he do? Sugar dumpling. I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all this strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy there, but I'll be bringing you meals in from Rosini's. I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. The second year. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Doc Miller and asked him to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please. Just for Papa. Just for Papa, all right? The third year. Maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something. Have you got any canned soup around the house? Come on, some of you know you've already done that this week. Offering your wife canned soup. The fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the floors, you'd better lie down. The fifth year. Ah, jeez. Why don't you just take a couple of aspirin or something? The sixth year. For crying out loud, I wish you would just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. (laughs) The seventh year. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? (laughs) See, we laugh, right? (laughs) But if we're honest, maybe not verbatim like this, right? The article reflects how with the passing of years, we become less sensitive, less tender that way, brothers, toward our wives. Instead of being sweet and tender and and loving and being about their needs, we become harsh toward our wives. We become cold and careless and mean-spirited. Gone is 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 the expressive affection toward them, the little things that you did when you were perhaps trying to, to, to get her to marry you. And that goes away. And instead we resort to this harsh type of disposition toward them. And the question is, where does this harshness come from? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from our hearts. But what does Paul tell us in verse 19? He says, it comes from a hardened, bitter heart. A hardened, bitter heart. And I like that verb there that he uses. It's the, that do not embittered verb. It appears in three different places in the book of Revelation. And it refers to something that goes into the stomach and brings bitterness and a violent response. It speaks of something that is sharp, that is harsh, that is bitter. 
It is the opposite of, of an inviting type of a, of a heart, of a soothing and pleasant type of a disposition. It is the opposite of those things. It refers here to an internally angry and resentful and bitter spirit. And Paul commands them and says, Husbands are not to allow this to happen, to live in it with a settled type of bitterness towards their wives. Why? Why are they not to allow this to happen? To habitually, it's a present imperative, to habitually be in a state of inward bitterness or resentment toward their wives. Why are Christian husbands not to allow this to happen? Well, first and foremost, look at the context because that person, that old person who was wicked, who lived for himself, is no more. He is no more. God has changed you and is changing you, is he not? In fact, in the context, look at chapter 3 and verse 8. He calls, exhorts believers to, to put, put, put aside, as in filthy clothing, verse 8, anger and wrath and malice and slander, abusive speech from your mouth, lying in verse 8. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. He says, put that stuff aside. It is no longer a part of you anymore. You are not to be patterned after, characterized after sinful pleasures and pursuits, including bitterness. What are you to do instead? Look at verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Put on love, he says in verse 14. The perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you in verse 16. So that you burst forth into praise and thanksgiving and gratitude to Almighty God. Along with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is to be us now as believers who are in Jesus. In the power of the Spirit we live that type of life. So husbands are not to allow bitterness to exist, to be cultivated in their hearts because they are no longer characterized. You've died to that man, in other words. You've died to that man. Listen, as new men, while we will struggle We must never justify settled, prolonged bitterness in our hearts, brothers. And many of us do more often than not. I've talked to brothers who do it. Somehow it seems right because of how much she has wronged him or how much she has hurt him or how many expectations she hasn't met. And he justifies his bitterness from within. Can I just challenge you? If you are living an unrepentant, unrepentant bitterness and resentment toward your wife and you choose not to forbear and forgive her, there's a deeper heart problem with you. Deeper than your relationship with her. You need to ask yourself some tough questions. If you don't see any difference in your heart being cultivated, then maybe you're not born again. Maybe you're not a Christian. So how would you have the power that comes by the Spirit of God to be able to forgive her, to be able to forbear. And so you must submit your life to Jesus Christ first and foremost, that He would be your master and that you would choose to follow Him and follow His Word to love your wife. 
Your state of bitterness, if prolonged and unrepentant, brother or my friend, is an indicator that you are not born again. If that's what you're comfortable in. Because the believer desires to change. The child of God wants to change, longs to change, wants to be set apart from sin and be holy, be like Jesus. And love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's a genuine believer, the heart of the genuine believer. It's not about perfection. It's about progression, isn't it? It's about cultivating the desires and the affections of the heart that we would be uh, positioned to, to be obedient to the word of God. That's what it's about. But see, as husbands, we settle into bitterness, don't we? For what types of things? Unmet expectations. Maybe marriage turned out not to be what you expected. They've turned out to be different than you thought. There's been disappointments in the marriage. Even good expectations, by the way. That may be biblical expectations directly from the Word of God. Brothers, that doesn't... Even if you have expectations that are biblical, a, a sinful response to your wife when she doesn't meet those expectations is sin on your part too. So we get bitter about those things. We become unforgiving for past hurts never addressed. Maybe conflicts that were never fully resolved. And we harbor sin in our hearts as, as men when, when we don't feel like she ever asked for forgiveness or she ever owned up to something. Well, even if that's the case, as husbands, we are called to a right response, right? To, to be re- have an eagerness and a readiness and a zeal to forgive when that asking does come, if it ever does come. Disagreements. We get bitter over disagreements over home issues or life issues. The training of the kids. Differences in philosophy of parenting. Finances. Problems with the money and how the money is used. How the home is being taken care of or not being taken care of. We have issues about extended family and how much time should we should spend with, the, with our extended family members, your side or my side. Who gets more time? And we get bitter about those kinds of things, right? And harbor those things. There are many, many, many different reasons why we get bitter. These are all areas of conflict that lead to that. And yet we're warned in Scripture to put that off. Because if we don't, then hatred is born. And slander is born. And abusive speech and abusive actions are born. Or indifference is born. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. You can choose love, or you can choose to strife, right? Driven by your heart of bitterness. Proverbs 10.18, he who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. See, when we harbor and we coddle that sin of bitterness and resentment and we pet it real good, we think it's not going to come out, brothers, but it will come out in some way, shape, or form. It will come out. It will be manifested. How will it be manifested? Well, for some of us, it will lead to outbursts of anger, won't it? expressive disapproval of our wives, out yelling. You're like a a teapot that screams eventually and explodes. Not caring about the types of words that come out of your mouth. Where does that come from? It comes from a bitter, resentful heart. 
where you're dwelling upon things, whatever those things may be, that you disapprove of your spouse, and you've chosen not to let love cover whatever differences you may have. Now, some of us are a little more subtle about our sin. So how does it show itself in our lives? Indifference. Indifference, a settled attitude that says, I don't care anymore. Whatever. It makes no difference to me. Either way, whether we are close or not, she can do whatever she wants. No sweat off my back. That's more subtle, a more subtle sin, but it's sin nevertheless. The opposite of love is not just hate. Understand that. It is also sinful indifference. The opposite of love is sinful indifference. Or we resort to avoidance. When we become bitter as husbands in our, in our hearts, we just stay away from them. We become so bitter, so resentful, that basically we just avoid them altogether. And then we basically throw our hands up in the air and say, it's hopeless. There is no hope anymore. By the way, hopelessness is also something that flows from, guess what? Bitterness. Bitterness. When we lose hope, we stop focusing upon the Lord and we're focused upon the, the, the wrongs and the offenses of our spouse. And when we don't see change, we throw our hands up in the air and say, it's hopeless. They're never going to change. Except that who should be the first one in the equation here? God, right? God. There's always hope in the gospel. There's always hope that our spouse can change. Because of the transforming power of the Spirit of God in somebody's heart and life, right? So we resort to these things, brothers. Outburst of anger, indifference, avoidance, hopelessness. All of those flow from a root called bitterness and resentment. And we must be diligent to dealing with that. Listen to me. This is why forgiveness must exist in a marriage or it is impossible it is impossible if you don't cultivate forgiveness in your marriage to experience got the fullness of god's blessing and happiness and joy in your marriage because there's no forgiveness you married a sinner and look in the mirror you're a sinner too and yet what did you expect sin is going to happen you're going to have to ask for forgiveness and ask frequently and often Okay? And vice versa. Forbearance and heartfelt forgiveness is utterly necessary, beloved, in marriage. Utterly necessary. And so I want to ask you this morning, husbands, what is it that is keeping you this morning from forgiving your wife? What is it? Let's reason together for a couple of minutes here. Wife, what is it that is keeping you from forgiving your husband. What is so bad? What is so insurmountable? What is so huge that God, by means of His Spirit and His Word, cannot help you to overcome that so that there is reconciliation and loving forgiveness in the marriage? What is it? Didn't God forgive you of greater offenses? If you're a believer... If you're not a believer, you don't care about what I'm saying right now. But if you're a believer, you understand something about the loving forgiveness of God found in Jesus Christ, right? Didn't God forgive you of offenses much greater, infinitely greater 
than anything your spouse can ever do toward you. There is an infinite chasm, beloved, of offenses that we've committed against God that simply does not exist between two sinners, no matter how holy they may be. There is nothing that your wife has done against you that is, not, that is greater than the forgiveness that God has extended toward you and how you've offended God, how you've offended Him. But God has forgiven you, hasn't He? You trusted in Christ. You embraced Him as Lord and Savior of your life. There was forgiveness granted. The wrath that was aimed in your direction because of your sin was removed. You are no longer guilty before Almighty God by faith in Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven. You've been acquitted. You were a prisoner that could not get out by anything that you could do. And now you have been released from captivity. Why is it that we can't forgive one another then? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the grace-motivated, spirit-empowered commitment from the heart to pardon or release someone from debt or wrong offense against you. Listen, forgiveness is the grace motivated because unless you understand God's grace shown toward you, you simply will not express graciousness toward one another in the same fashion. It is grace motivated. Gospel motivated. It is spirit empowered. Because only as the spirit of God empowers you and guides you by means of the word of God, can you put off sin and put on Christ's likeness and virtue toward your spouse as well. It is spirit-empowered. What does forgiveness involve? How do you know that it's genuine? Well, three things. In your thoughts, you commit to no longer dwelling on the unresolved issue. No longer dwelling upon it. Seething. Saturating yourself in wrong, suffered. Thinking about what could have been. No, you're thinking now God's thoughts after him according to his word. In your thoughts, you're no longer dwelling on the unresolved issue. Two, in your speech, you commit to not bringing up the resolved issue again, to use it against your spouse again. You know, five years ago, you did the same thing. You know, a year ago, you did the exact same thing. Let me remind you of that again. That flies well, doesn't it? It doesn't fly well at all. You commit in your speech to not bring that up again against them. Thirdly, in your relationship with your spouse, you, make a, uh, you commit to not allow that resolved issue to hinder your relationship in any way, shape, or form. By the grace that God supplies, empowered by the Spirit of God, we do this, brothers. Forgiveness is utterly, utterly necessary. And it shows itself in our thoughts, our speech, our ongoing relationship. It should flesh itself out. There should be fruitfulness if there's genuine forgiveness, true peace, true reconciliation. So we must deal with our bitter hearts and extend forgiveness or it will lead to harsh, hardened type of leadership brothers in your marriage. That's what it's going to lead to. On the other hand, what do we need to be? Tender leaders. Tender leaders. And I want to show you this. Where does tenderness flow from? A soft, gentle, humble disposition toward our spouses. Where does that flow from? 
Well, obviously it flows from our hearts. So what should we cultivate in our hearts? I believe that 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, if you can turn there, has the answer for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. We've seen verses 1 through 6 a couple of Sundays ago. In 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands are addressed. And we're shown how a right understanding of our wife, of who she is, who God has called her to be, leads to sensitive, tender type of leadership. When you understand how God has wired her, the precious vessel that she is, her wiring, her human makeup that is different than yours. You know, recently, um, I visited one of our couples here at the church, um, and they, had a, they just had a newborn uh, baby. And so they, ha- they gave me an opportunity to hold that newborn baby. I haven't held a newborn baby that long since my Chloe, what, four and some odd years ago. And um, it's amazing. You hold those precious little things, and you understand. You have a knowledge of the, the, the frailty of that little human being, right? They're vulnerable. They're frail. They're tender. And so you don't grab that baby and throw it up in the air, right? What do you do with that baby? You nurture it. You hold it in your arms, right? You, you care for it. There is tenderness that is expressed to that, toward that baby. Why? Because you as a human being, you understand the nature of that little human being that you're holding in your arms, that they are tender and frail and weak and vulnerable. And so you treat it accordingly as you understand it, right? Husbands, so, is the same, so it is in the same way with your wives, Husbands are to handle their wives with with care and tenderness. That's what God wants from husbands. But if we are to do this, there is a certain body of knowledge, if you will, of information, of, of insight that we must constantly keep in mind regarding who our wives are and how God has wired them that propels us to be leaders who are tender. The mindset and the understanding of who God has made her How she's wired drives the action and the love, right? Renewing your mind leads to healthy living, right? So what does he say in 1 Peter 3, 7? Notice, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. We have been called to the the sharing of our lives with our wives. But the question is, how should we live with them? Lording our authority over them? Harshly treating them? No, he tells us. Live with them. Dwell with them continually is the idea. In an understanding way. Literally according to knowledge. According to knowledge. In other words, listen. There is some essential and beneficial knowledge about your wife that you must remember and keep in mind and by the power of the Spirit of God live by if you are going to be loving her and treating her with tenderness. And what is that knowledge? Notice he tells us, first and foremost, the knowledge that she is someone weaker. Literally, a weaker vessel. So we're told she is different. She is not like you. She's different. She is someone weaker, literally a weaker vessel. I love that term vessel. It referred to utensils that were used in temple service or utensils used in, in, in the household. 
but it could also be used metaphorically of, of people as it is being used here. She is explicitly called a vessel, implicitly implied. He's also a vessel. He's the stronger vessel of the two. So what does it mean that she's the weaker vessel? What does that mean? Is Peter a chauvinist? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that she is inferior. We saw verses 1 through 6 a couple of Sundays ago, didn't we? And we saw the the value and the worth that God places upon a godly woman who submits to her husband. Why would he tear her down right here and imply that she's inferior if in verses 1 through 6 he lifted the, the wives up? It can't mean that she's inferior. It can't mean that she's weaker in character. It can't mean that she's weaker intellectually. Weaker in status, for they're both made, as we've seen a few Sundays ago, they're both made equally in the image of God, were they not? So she's not inferior in any way, shape, or form, intellectually, in character, in status. What this means is the obvious truth that, generally speaking, women are physically weaker than men. But also, I believe that this refers to, to emotional sensitivity that is a part of her. The emotional makeup of a woman is a great strength, but it's also something that has the potential to bring about greater hurt when there's conflict in the marriage upon her. She is hurt by her lack of love by her husband. I think there's something to be said about that. And this is why God has wired husbands to be protectors, to be courageous, to be caretakers of their wives spiritually and physically and emotionally. But also notice, he highlights something else. He says, since she is a woman. Again, is Peter again a chauvinist? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about her, her femininity, her womanliness. He's not implying in any way, shape or form that she's inferior. He's not putting her down, saying she's less. Instead, he's highlighting that she, is, she, she, being woman, is feminine, and she has womanly characteristics. She's fragile. She is gentle, is she not? That's what he's getting at. She is not a man. She's not a man. She's different. Different. <laughs> Caught a glimpse of this the other day. Get up early in the morning. And my wife and I have been exercising early in the morning. And I got ready in two minutes, popped out of bed, put my shoes on, didn't brush my teeth or anything. Sorry to tell you guys that. Put on a hat, you know, and I'm a mess. And I had woken her up as well. And she, 10, 10, 12 minutes later, comes out. She combed her hair and she put on her her, um, um, jogging attire, you know, brushed her teeth. And she came out and, and I'm like, honey, my goodness, 10 minutes later. Oh my goodness, chomping at the best to get, get out of here, right? We have some time to follow here. And I realized at that moment, here I am, stinky campus, right? Literally. <laughs> Looking like a dog, right? And I'm, I'm judging her based upon my own standard. Even in little things we do that, don't we? She's wired different. She wants to make sure she looks okay <laughs> before she walks out, Right? We do that all the time, brothers, in various um, other various other ways and examples. She is fragile. 
She is feminine. She's different than we are. And the more that we understand as husbands the differences between us and our wives, the more we will be equipped to lead them with love and tenderness. And over time, what happens is that we learn to appreciate these differences, don't we? And instead of bringing each other down or becoming bitter over the differences, we learn to appreciate those differences and leverage those differences so that we move in one direction together as a team to accomplish a common goal. You know what this verse tells me? That I need to become a better student of my wife. I need to study her, and so do you. You need to become a better student of your wife. You know, men study all kinds of things, don't they? Men study cars. Some of you love cars and NASCAR and all that kind of junk. I never liked that. Sports. And you follow your favorite teams. Movies. We study movies and all the intricacies of Hollywood and and whether that was a good picture or it wasn't. We study that and we talk about it. We have hobbies that we study. We have money. We study tactics to make money and be more successful with our money-making business. We have electronic gadgets and we read the manuals and all of that to study how to use that stupid thing. That's become so complicated, right? Some of us love to read books and we're bookworms and we study all kinds of different topics. Some of us love to love construction and we so we're always learning new projects and learning how to build things. We study all kinds of different things, men. Every man should be a theologian. Every man should be studying God and seeking to know God by means of His Word, right? Every single man. But after the study of theology and the study of God to know Him, the most important subject for you as a husband is your wife. She's the most important topic. After the study of God, and what flows from the study of God, I would say, is, as a husband, studying her When we were dating, we did that, didn't we? You remember that? I remember getting my wife's letters, dissecting every single little word. Every letter, every phrase, right? Does she love me? Does that mean that she loves me? What about that conjunction? Why did she use that conjunction right there as opposed to the other place, right? What inference can I draw from that? You studied letters, nuances in their love notes to you. When you went out with her, You carefully examine all of her facial expressions, right? The way that her her face, uh, her muscles moved, right? How she spoke. Was she upset? Is she expressing love to you, right? Does she want to be with you for the rest of her life, right? We studied one another. How about now, husbands? How about now? What's happened? What's happened? We become so bogged down with the conflicts and we don't want to turn the other cheek and let love cover a multitude of sins and and grant forgiveness. And so we're stuck in a rut of those conflicts and we're not even cultivating a proactive approach where we're cultivating our marriage by spending time with one another and loving one another. We should be exegetes of our wives, brothers. Exegetes, inductive students of our wives, drawing them out. How do we do that? We become better acquainted with our wives and students of our wives when we read the Word of God, right? We find out what God says about, about this, this woman, this precious woman that He's fashioned for, especially for you, and the principles of the Word of God. 
You grow as a student of, of your wife by listening to good sermons. By surrounding yourself with good material that talks about marriage and family and you being a loving husband. You, you study your wife by being discipled in the area of marriage so that another older godly man can come alongside of you. Even if they don't have all their ducks in a row, they can teach you some things that you don't know about marriage. You don't know everything. Amen? We don't know everything. Discipleship. Personal investment from someone else into you. Read good books. Here's the other one. Spend time with her. Quantity and quality of time, right? Quantity and quality of time. And in those times, write down some probing questions. I do that. I keep an ongoing log, a list of questions for my wife, open-ended questions for her. Because I know how much of a loser I can be sometimes and not have something, something valuable to talk about when I'm with her. I want to keep myself in check there. You should know answers to questions such as, what are her strengths and weaknesses? What are, her, what are her deepest desires? What are her goals? What are her passions? What makes your wife tick in her life? What motivates your wife? What encourages her? What discourages her most in life? What are her greatest fears? Do you know the answer to those brothers? I recognize it's an ongoing thing. Study. The answers to these questions require both time and attention, don't they? Quantity and quality of time. So she's different. And we need to study her and understand her that we might be tender leaders. But she's also precious. Precious. And I get this from the statement in the middle of verse 7. Notice, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Listen, our wives are precious to God and He wants us to treat them with the utmost of respect and precious as well and hold them up as the most dear and important person in your life. Honor them. In a time when women were not considered precious, were not valued, Peter reminds husbands that they are to hold their wives in high esteem. They are to be honored before their eyes. Showing them respect and kindness and courtesy that befits someone who holds the special place in our lives, brothers. And notice the reason we are to honor them in verse 7. As a fellow heir of the grace of life. I think the grace of life there is the marriage relationship itself. If you're married, your wife is a partaker of the most precious relationship here on earth, which is your marriage with her. They are to be honored because they are equal in divine privilege that way. They are no less than we are. And just in case we think that as husbands, we can, we can say, well, you know what? Things are pretty rocky in my marriage, but I have a great relationship with the Lord and that's all that matters. Lord is what he says there. You ought to do this and understand these things so that your prayers will not be, what? Hindered. Literally cutting off. It is used of cutting down trees or of putting up obstacles or traps on the battlefield so that an army could not advance. That is what he's talking about here. Listen, no Christian husband can have a vibrant relationship with God if you are in a continual prayerlessness. In a state of prayerlessness. If you're not communing with your father. 
And so think about the implications of what he's saying. Think about this. When you and I don't lead our wives with tenderness and sensitivity and honor them, our communion, communion with our Heavenly Father is temporarily interrupted. Cut off. The line doesn't work. This is a warning to us, brothers. A warning to us, husbands, don't be deceived or kid yourself. You cannot say that you have a vibrant and growing relationship with God while at the same time treating your wife harshly as the pattern of your life and living in unrepentant bitterness toward her. It simply doesn't work that way, does it? That's what he's saying essentially here. So if you're a husband who's living in sin, unrepentant sin, by not loving your wife with a tender kind of love, then there's something greater at stake in your relationship with God. That will suffer. And you ought to fear that. You ought to fear that. So as to drive you back to repent and to turn from your sin and confess your sin to God and to your wife and ask for her forgiveness and seek renewal from the Lord. I want to ask you this morning, do you honor your wife? Do you treat her as precious? You say, how do I do that, Kempis? How do I do that? Well, you can honor her by listening to her. By hearing her out genuinely from the heart, taking time, quantity and quality of time, and making her a priority so you may listen to her. That's how you may honor her. You know, one of the main reasons that lead to to wives committing adultery is that they find in another man someone who listens to her. A brother and I were discussing that this week. And he said this, The husband cheats for sex, but women cheat for emotional fulfillment. (sighs) Profound. Think about that. The husband cheats for sex, but women cheat for emotional fulfillment. She's going to find her emotional fulfillment somewhere else. Someone else will listen to her better than you do. And connect with her on a deeper level. And it's going to lead to some other things. And before you know it, you got adultery. That's how it works. We as husbands ought to be the greatest listeners. Honoring our wives by giving them quantity and quality of time. That they would not be driven. Even tempted to be driven. To go give their, their, their attention to somebody else. And pour out their hearts that belong to God and belong to you. For during this earthly time, beloved. You are the only one that is to have her heart in that way on a human level. Marriage is an exclusive relationship with you before Almighty God. No one else is to know those things about her except you. As far as males go. Honor her by caring for her needs. Honor her by caring for her needs. Do you even know your wife's spiritual needs? Her emotional needs, her physical needs. You show her honor and that she is precious to you when you know her needs and you are committed deliberately and purposefully to meet those needs as long as they're within biblical parameters and they honor the Lord and for her true benefit. You honor her by meeting her needs, caring for her needs. You honor her by complimenting her. Complimenting her. When was the last time you expressed to your wife thanksgiving and gratitude? When was the last time you expressed to your wife that she's beautiful to you? That she is cherished and treasured in your eyes and you gave her specific reasons why she is that to you. A man accompanied his friend home for dinner and was impressed by the way that he entered his house, asked his wife how her day went and told her she looked really pretty. 
Then after they embraced, she served dinner. And after they ate, the husband complimented his wife on the meal and thanked her for it. When the two fellows were alone, the visitor asked, Why do you treat your wife so well? He answered, Because she deserves it. And it makes our marriage happier, replied the host. Impressed, the visitor decided to adopt the idea. So arriving home, he embraced his wife and said, You look wonderful, dear. For good measure, he added, Sweetheart, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. His wife suddenly burst into tears. Bewildered, he asked her, What in the world's the matter with you? She wept. What a day. Billy fought at school. The refrigerator quit and spoiled the groceries. And now you've come home drunk. <laughs> What's the lesson? Don't be that guy who, who is so seldom compliments his wife that finally when he does, she thinks he's drunk. He's out of his mind. We honor them by protecting her. We protect her, brothers. We protect her before people, and we protect her before the kids who are, if they're in the home. We lift her up before the children so that they see that there's an unrivaled p- p- person in your heart and life, even above them. Because one day the kids will leave, and it's all you and her, right? And the Lord. It's all you and her. So what are you doing now to cultivate that love and that romance and that tender care for one another and protecting her in that fashion? Well, I don't know about you, but I need God's grace. Amen? I need God's grace to endure, to be a leader who is loving and who is tender. And it's not going to come by anything in ourselves, brothers. It's going to come by seeking God's help, right? Listen, do you believe that God wants your marriage to succeed? Yeah. As a husband, you ought to be a man of faith. God wants your husband to succeed. And if you believe this, then you and I will look to him for help. Oh, God, help me. I don't understand her right now, but you do, Heavenly Father. Please help me to understand her. Oh, God, help me to let go of those past hurts and to let love cover where it needs to cover. Oh, God, help me to, to follow after the example of your son, love for the church to forg- and who forgave his church and be forgiving my wife as well. Listen to Paul David Tripp's encouragement to us husbands when you feel like you're in the pits of despair. Okay? I'll read this in closing. Where will you find the reasons to continue working on your marriage in those disappointing moments when those reasons are most needed? You won't find them in your spouse. He or she shares your condition of sin. Your spouse is still a flawed person in need of God's transforming grace. You won't find them in the ease of your circumstances. You still have to live in a world that is groaning and that is broken. You won't find them in surface strategies and techniques. Your struggles are deeper than that. You will only find your reasons to continue by looking up. By looking up. When your heart rests in the amazing wisdom of the choices of a powerful creator, you have given yourself reason to continue. When your heart celebrates the myriad of careful choices choices that were made to bring your stories together, you have given yourself reason to continue. When your heart is filled with gratitude for the amazing grace that you both have been and are being given, you have reason, given yourself reason to continue. You are not alone. 
You're creating, ruling, transforming. Lord Jesus is with you. He has brought your stories together and placed them smack dab in the middle of his redemptive story. As long as he is creator, as long as he is the sovereign one, and as long as he is the savior, you have reason to get up in the morning and love one another, even though you aren't yet what he created you to be. I love that. I love that. We need the grace of God. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll dismiss. Oh, Lord. Who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate to live out your good and perfect will? None of us are in our own strength, Lord. I pray, Father, for my brothers. And I pray for my friends who are not believers. That, Lord, we may ask some hard questions today. For us who are believers. That we may turn from cultivating a bitter heart that leads to harsh leadership. That leads to unloving remarks and words and actions. That leads to sinful indifference and avoidance. And even a sense of hopelessness because we are functioning like practical atheists in our marriage. For those of us who are not Christians, I pray, Lord, for hearts that would cry out to you for salvation for forgiveness found only in Jesus, not in anything that we can do or in our own merit, but the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ alone in His sacrifice for our sins, that they may believe in Christ and be saved, and that they may build their marriage upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Help us to rely upon Your grace, to rely upon Your Spirit's empowering, and to be guided by Your precious Holy Word, our blueprint, if we are to be faithful, loving, tender, husbands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.